Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Alan Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) It's the season two finale and we're ending it on a high. We have the extraordinary Golden Rain Dove. You'll likely know them better by face than by voice, but that's soon to change. Rain Dove was the first model ever to be in both male and female magazine covers at the same time and have been using their hefty social media platform to defy gender norms and raise awareness about women's rights and mental health amongst other issues. Rain joins us to talk about the impact of growing up in rural Vermont and not fitting into the aesthetic expected of them despite the F on their birth certificate. It wasn't until working as a firefighter in an all-male team who thought that Rain was a man that they realised they were able to present both as male and as female. We talk about the benefits and drawbacks of presenting as either gender and what being a gender capitalist really means. Rain tells us about their often harrowing experiences of using male and female bathrooms and why unisex toilets are in fact the safest loo option for everyone. What strikes me most about Rain's story is how, despite having Trump-supporting parents and leaving home at 18 after coming out, they believe in empathy with the people who most ostracise them. Their message of acceptance and kindness is paramount and, quite frankly, inspirational. One of the things that was really clearly showcased, especially in media, is that a successful woman is a woman who people see as being fuckable versus unfuckwithable. And I just didn't have that natural aesthetic that people found to be sexually desirable. It was one of those things where I grew up knowing pretty clear out the gate that I wasn't going to be that girl next door Cinderella story who gets swept off their feet at the end of the movie and my life is going to be okay, that I was going to have to work to make people want to be around me. Like, just looking the way I look wasn't enough. That's how I felt, anyway. And I had to accept at a very young age that, like, by societal standards, not my own, but by societal standards, I was an ugly woman. And what does that mean? I decided, like, in order to kind of get over it and get past it, that maybe I wasn't that girl next door or that princess. Maybe I was the one who survives a zombie apocalypse with, you know, my German shepherd and my motorcycle and my really cool boots and my katana sword. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was also a very small town. So there wasn't a lot of diversity in opinion or expression. And you're talking about a town with like 400 people in it, you know? And if you can't, if you can't make that small community happy, there aren't a lot of other options for friends. It just felt like, I don't know, like I would never be able to be honest with myself, you know, and other people. How did the people around you 
make you feel like this? So uh, I grew up during the Britney Spears era. Like, there were always like, you know, girls uh, that would go out at lunchtime and they would do Britney Spears dances and they always had on eyeshadow was a really big thing and a lot of pink and like pleather was like a big fad at the time. And I was a farm kid, you know. I wore hand-me-downs for my parents that oftentimes didn't always fit. Like I remember going to school sometimes and using bailing twine to keep my pants up because I was using one of my parents' pants. And I smelled like the farms. And so I think that people just were very vocal about the fact that they felt that they were on the right path to success, that they were cool, that they had it figured out, you know, partially because I was just an easy person to, to show that social status. Yeah, exclusion always seems to be a way, doesn't it, for people to, to play a status game. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a really common story. I think I would say most people feel that at some point in their life that they've been put on the outskirts. So my story isn't necessarily an American Idol X Factor worthy story, <laughs> but it is the truth. I did feel I did feel incredibly alone, and I turned to books. You know, books were like my addiction. I loved the Red Wall series was just an amazing little adventure series, and of course, uh, Harry Potter was really cool. Um, I love the Count of Monte Cristo. I always thought that was brilliant, brilliantly written. I loved the writings of Jean M. Owl. And in fact, the first time I was introduced to the idea of sex was through her books by accident. I was reading and it was like, it would say something really lewd, you know, it's describing a scene. I'm like, yeah, they do what? What? Like, like I, 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 I don't I, know her work. Yeah. Jean M. Owl, uh, they have an amazing series. They have a Clan of Cave Bear, Valley of the Horses, The Mammoth Hunters. And, uh, it's a series that actually is incredibly relevant today. It's about a character who just, they ostracized from their clan and yeah. they go through some tough stuff and they just go out on their own to just to find their people who might not even be by blood, just to find people. It and sounds very much like beautiful. the queer journey, really, doesn't it? I really related to that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost every book, someone has to come out of a great sense of feeling either marginalized or a great flaw within themselves. And I just convinced myself that maybe I was just at the beginning of a very good book, you know? And, you, a, and you were, and you are. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm just struck about those people <laughs> that thought that they were the shit. Mm. And where are they now? I did have one person who bullied me. To, we had the same name. Uh, my name, uh, when I was growing up, I wasn't, people didn't call me Rain Dove. Um, they said I'd get bullied for using this name, so and I was already getting bullied, bullied enough, so I went by my Christian name, which is Danielle, and there was another person in my class who had the name Danielle. Now, there were a few Danielles, so no one will be able to hopefully figure out who this person is. But, okay, so basically this person ended up contacting me a few years ago, and they were like, I just want to say I'm really sorry for the way I treated you, and like it's just amazing to see what you're doing. And I felt really grateful for that. And they said, I just, I want to give back to you because I just want to make up for all of the hardship I put you through. And I said, you don't have to do that. It's very sweet. And they said, no, I want to. Look, I'm going to mail you this amazing product that is really cool. It's helped me out a lot. It's a weight loss product. And I thought, if you really like it, maybe your friends might like it as well. And you can share it with them. And I think that would be just such a cool way for me to give back to the queer community. And... <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay. And she goes, and for every person who really likes it, one of the great things is, is I feel like you could 
you could make some money off from this. It could be really great um, because if they like it, I actually have a hookup at the company and I can hook you up. And I realized this whole thing was Fucking just a scam to sell some stupid weight loss terrible. Dan- Danielle's <laughs> apology was a pyramid scheme. I was having that moment and I was kind of going through a douchey phase in my life where I was a little bit full of myself in the beginning. So when she called, I was like, and here it is. I have arrived. My enemies are now calling me to apologize. And then, of course, it's a pyramid scheme. And now all the people in class, every single one, uh, they all have kids and they have their families and they're doing their jobs. And a lot of them are Trump supporters, which I think is really interesting. A lot of them li- still live in, in that small town in Vermont. It's a lifestyle that they love. But I realized that if I was a part of that group, I might have never left. I might not be doing the work that I'm doing today. And I'm grateful that I had an incentive to be pushed out so I can go on this adventure. Because I don't know if I ever would have wanted to leave. What was the first step out of that small town in Vermont? Mm -hmm. I ended up being, like, basically I was discovered that I was... um, uh, a person who enjoyed people who had the same type of genitals as myself. And it put my parent in, my parents are divorced, but it put one of my parents in a place in which they really felt that their social standing was jeopardized by it. And I stepped out because of that. You know, it was very like self sacrificial. They were very ashamed and very concerned about it getting back to their family and them looking like a bad parent. So you were the self-sacrifice to save them I, from... I mean, you know, and I look back and I'm like, it didn't have to be that way. But in that period of time, I was like, this is the time in which I take one for the family. There I go off into the mist <laughs> on a journey yet unknown. But... Everyone else shall be happy. Like, you know, it was like one of those, I actually didn't have to suffer in that way. I could have fought more to be loved and accepted or to work through and educate my family about my sexuality or my identity. But I felt like there was no option because there was so much anguish. So I just went out to Colorado. uh, How old were you at this time? I was 19. Um, I was 18 when I left home and then I went to Burlington, Vermont. Um, I was there for a short period of time and then I went out to Colorado and then California and then back to New York. Yeah. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about your firefighter journey. Yeah, I mean, um, this was a turning point in my life in which I, you know, I'm leaving a, a world in which I felt like that F on my birth certificate stood for failure because I knew that I wasn't going to be successful in living up to what I like to call the expectations of what it means to have that F on your birth certificate. And if I did live up to them, I would be lying to myself every day. And then suddenly I found myself in a world in which I went out to work with this group of people that um, they're uh, wildfire prevention officers, but I had originally gone to go work in a national park. I showed up and it was a bigger job than I anticipated. And uh, they mistook me as male. Uh, it was winter time, and just I would just happened to be wearing layers, and I had very short hair, and I just got mistaken as a uh, male. And I'd never been mistaken as a man before. Growing up in a small community, no matter how societally masked someone might see you, because everyone knows everyone, no one misgenders you or mislabels you. And suddenly here I am at this table of people talking about which women they want on their crew based off from how attractive those women are. Oh, yeah, I'd love to fuck her. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, her. Oh, no. Shovel face over there? Mm Mm-mm. No. And for the first time, I found myself being like, I don't want to be the ugly girl again. These people don't know me. Um, I figured maybe I could just kind of play a joke on them. And because they already mistook me as male, I was like, well, maybe by the end of the day, I'll just tell them, like, 
you know, you got that wrong, by the way. But that opportunity just didn't arise. The end of the day turned into the end of the week, turned into the end of the month. And then I'm going for, you know, a few months, just like never being outed as being someone with an F on my birth certificate. No one even questioned. And um, I didn't correct anyone. And it was interesting because at first I was like, oh my gosh, I think I just discovered like a superpower to be considered a cis white hetero man in America. Like, yes, like golden ticket to the front of the line. I was just like privilege. Like I was like super excited to see like what I was going to be benefiting uh, from that experience. I was like, okay, well, what now that I know that I can be perceived as this, imagine what I can do after I get out of this. No longer do I have to be considered an ugly woman. Like, because whenever somebody posts for a job and they're like looking for a female, like server, looking for a female bartender, looking for a female nanny, they're never talking about me. I'm not that female that they're looking for. So I'm like, I might be able to actually move up in society. This could be amazing. But my experience with this group of people ended up being one that was really humbling because of my aesthetic. I was actually very feminist and um, I still believe in feminism and support feminism. But I mean, I was at that period of time, I was like, men are the problem, men, men, men. I was like, if only like men could understand women <laughs> and our struggles. And, and then suddenly um, I found myself with these people and everything I had ever thought about how easy their life is simply because of their sex identity, it was just completely skewed. Some things were affirmed about certain privileges and power of voice, but then there were certain things like, for instance, when we were working with female counterparts on the trails and things like that, we couldn't talk to them the same way that we could talk to each other because there was an awareness that if you're as blunt and as lewd or as like direct, it can come across as aggressive. When really uh, amongst like the other men, it's just a part of the thing. And because of that cultural divide, there was literally a different language being spoken and a feeling that you have to dumb yourself down in order to appease another person. So a power dynamic takes mm. place. There's also this idea that like in a world that's fighting for equal pay, we've changed like the expectations in the workplace, but we haven't changed the expectations at home. So we're still kind of expecting that like these male identities are going to be able to pay for two people at all times. That if their girlfriend were to lose their job and have to stay at home, he's just being a good guy and a good provider. But if he loses his job and stay at home and it's more than a week or two, he's a bum. And most intensely, when you're especially working in a field where there's emergency situations that can occur, it is very much expected, women and children first, and men are just expected to accept their fate and die. And it made me realize that we expect men to give up their lives first. And because we expect their men to give their lives, men control lives because the, there's a lot at stake if they're not in control. It's a nice sentiment to say women and children first, these gentle people first, but when you start homogenizing the people around you as, as generalized experiences, that's when oppressions start occurring and that's when communications are lost. Mm -hmm. So I basically, I walked away from this experience with this <clears throat> realization that no matter what people perceived me to be, male or female, I was always going to lose out in some kind of a situation mm -hmm. because of what people thought I had between my legs or what they thought I had on my birth certificate. Mm -hmm. And I realized I don't have time for that. I don't want that. I want to be given what I'm given because of the way I show up in the world and because of the way that I am. I want to be treated as a being who's being and not as an idea of how I would be. 
I was wondering about how the guys felt that they were able to exp- mm. what they were able to express or what they weren't able to express and if you know in an all seemingly all male environment whether that changes I mean yeah it's definitely way different um, for instance like a lot of people are like men have no emotions men don't share as much but men do but the, it's a very different culture right with these particular people and my experience with people who identify as men I, I have found that when you share emotions with someone it's very transactional they they actually enjoy caretaking because it it allows them to feel like a sense of validation that they're wise enough or strong enough to do so. But at the other side of it, um, there's a great amount of shame and being weak and being perceived as somebody who can't handle themselves because I think a lot of men feel very alone, like that they have to be the leader of their own uh, tribal experience at all times. So when you give up that emotional space, it's like a deep bond of like, I am lowering my power for you and it's it's very primal in my experience from from my thing when they would express their emotions like when they share something emotional and they say i'm feeling sad or i'm feeling down you feel like they're prostrating in front of you you know what i mean so you're there, you also have this deep feeling of respect because you know that it, it it's taken it a lot of processing something. it costs them something to come to you so there's this weird mutual respecting thing but you're also kind of expected to either take advice or if you don't take advice then figure your shit out so there's a there's also this element of like I'm sharing with you I'm here but also your problem can't be perpetual you know what I mean this has to be fixed <laughs> yeah th- this has to be fixed you have to get your stuff figured out so it can feel like a, a beautiful and sacred thing but also very lonely um, whereas I find when I'm with people who identify as women and um, you know this is like once again it's a blanket statement this isn't with every person but uh, a general thing that's very popular is that emotions are things that aren't as transactional. No, and yet I do feel like it's a currency. I do find that like emotions can be highly weaponized on, bo- on both sides, yeah. um, either through gaslighting or through if you do share an emotion, I'm going to pocket this because I know it's a portal into controlling that inner being in your life. True. But it's a different kind of um, thing because we've taught people that women are emotional and that men are not. So people don't value women's emotions as much because they feel like they're always emotional. Yeah. They're always having these these irritating sadnesses. I am an, a very emotional being and find it very hard actually to hide my emotions. But every time I have done, I've seen it as some sort of coup that mm. oh, I was able to hide. My, that Often when it's anger, actually, I was able to hide that I was angry. I was able to hide it. They, were, they don't know that I was cross or that I couldn't bear. <laughs> they couldn't see mm. the white knuckles under the table mm. during that meeting. But, but women mustn't be perceived mm. as angry, must well, they? Yes, because I think it frightens people and because they think we're out of control and that we're unpredictable and like a loose cannon. And Ooh. when they do yeah. see that, when they do see that you're angry, I immediately feel like, I've fucked up. I've lost an opportunity. They're not going to trust me again. I, and it's about it is about power. It's all about power. That stuff, isn't it? It is. It's it's like when you share your truth. I mean, you are saying I'm like doing a powerful thing, but I'm giving the power to the other people to perceive what I am in its full, true honesty. And you're basically kind of like curtsying to them and hoping they're not going to cut your fucking head off. I think one of the reasons why people are so afraid of somebody who identifies as a woman's anger is because I think that sometimes the tongue can do a lot more damage than the fist. What we are is not our body. What we are are 
um, a series of feelings and perceptions. And when you're able to tap into that, you're able to create these scars and these cuts and these deep things that we cannot escape. Whereas like when people, you know, settle things with their fists, you have a bruise on your leg and you know where that came from. You have a broken jaw, you know where that came from. And you can justify, you can be like, okay, this is how we got from here to here. But people are told like women fight with their words, women fight with emotions. And I think, I think in a lot of ways, a lot of women are taught to do that. But when you do that, you're fighting with something that is so sacred, which is that you're able to access the essence of that person and shake it. And that is so scary because in order to solve it, that person has to go deep within themselves to address the weaknesses or the things that in their life that maybe you've pointed out. And there's also like a double shame sometimes with words, with the impact mm. that, or wounds that words can wield, um, of, no, of the acknowledgement that it has made a lasting impression. Yes. Like the shame not only of the thing that they've identified in you, but then that you haven't been able to get over it. It's only words. It's only a comment. Yes. Why the hell haven't I been able to do that? I, I wasn't even strong enough to keep that to keep those words. Like out. the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, they will. <laughs> oh my gosh, because it's not about the words. It's not about the words, because words are just sounds that have an, a history and intention behind it. It's the intentions. Mm. It's the thing throwing out uh, that people are throwing out at you, saying. Your existence is um, not good enough. We're, we're just like constantly, all the time, every single second, we are just like trying to hold it together. And when somebody can like tap into it and be like, you, you aren't the thing that you thought that you were, and they, they, they rattle the, the chaos in our own hearts. It's, it's so scary and incredibly powerful. So in a lot of ways, I think, um, I think that the way that women fight is very powerful. And I, and I actually, uh, just the other day I was talking about how the world is shifting its energy, right? So we're going from a place in which we are very physical. Um, you, like you show up, you're physical, you fight. And there we have a very, uh, what society might deem to be a patriarchal energy. But we're moving towards what society might deem to be a matriarchal energy because we um, are more online. We're, we're not our bodies, we're our beings. And we are these thoughts, ideas, and intentions versus this physicality. And, and so we've stopped weaponizing our bodies and we've started weaponizing our words and facts and, and things that we can find. And, and we're fighting in this way that society, based on its history and its brainwashings, would deem to be very feminine. So there is actually a great fear, I think, of women, especially right now, because women have been fighting in this particular way and been taught to fight in this particular way for thousands of years. So we got a hand up if you, if you talk about like people with an F on their birth certificate. So women are very, they're, they're more powerful than they've ever been right now. No, I'm fascinated to hear your, your views on um, the way that men sort of almost are taught to withhold emotion because to express it is weakness. When you talk about within a private relationship or within mm. two people that trust each other, if you do, if you're um, identified as a man and you share that emotion with someone, you're absolutely right about the respect thing. It's about, I trust you enough that you are not going to laugh at me or harm me mm. or weaponize this yeah. thing I've shared with you because I wouldn't have shared it with you if I didn't value you. Yeah, absolutely. I told Naomi earlier that I was just basically slightly overwhelmed with, with work, et cetera, that's going on. And actually, I felt really embarrassed about telling Naomi Did that. Did you? Hugely embarrassed. 
I didn't know that. I felt hugely embarrassed, but I thought, thought actually, I trust Naomi, so I will tell Naomi. Because actually, to be fair, you, you kind of said you look stressed and you asked <laughs> me about it, which most people generally don't. You know, you just get on with your day and you recognise that actually stress is a normal part of what you need to do. And actually, I need to suck it up. And that's the sense I had all of today. I just need to suck this up and get on with it. Now, obviously, it's a utter pleasure doing this because actually it, it's really interesting talking about how men and perceived as men are meant to behave. Mm. And obviously, you have been perceived as a man mm. and you're in this firefighter environment <laughs> and you tell this brilliant story about how you're sat around the fire um, mm. on the, one of these sort of trips out and you're drinking whiskey which you're not meant to be doing <laughs> yeah. and then you all have to go for a piss. We were sitting around the fire it was a men's only fire um, and we are having whiskey celebrating the end of our training and one person just they took a swig of whiskey and we were all passing it around. They're like, you have to promise me that if I die, you're going to go back to the place you saw me last, scoop up some of my ashes and send it home to my mom. And I remember this feeling like this is something I would see in a movie about like men warriors, you know, like 300 Sparta, like something deep and like musky, you know. And uh, <laughs> I, I felt like in that moment, like it, it really hit me. I felt like privileged to be there, you know? And then all of a sudden, this would, okay, so imagine like you have some kind of David Attenborough kind of crossover with like the crocodile hunter, Steve Irwin, okay? And they have to narrate this whole entire situation, all right? They'd be like, there they are in the wild, all the male firefighters having some whiskey. But one fledgling firefighter has still yet to make the pass. In a ritualistic movement, the male firefighters all go to the edge of a cliff and they decide to take a piss together. The fledgling firefighter lingers behind, but if he does not join the ranks, he may soon be pushed out and banished forever. So I find myself having to stand up. I go to the edge of this cliff. I've never peed in front of these guys before. And I do feel very much like I'm being all narrated, you know? <laughs> and, like, I, I, I've never – I think they probably thought I had, like, bowel problems because, I, I mean, I always was, like, squatting. If they saw me, they see me, like, squatting, right? And for the first time, I found myself having to pee in front of them. And I'm like, how do I do this? I, I have to have something come out. So I got my two <laughs> hands. I'm like, I'm, like, trying to funnel it as much as I'm splashing it away from my body, you know. And, like, there's just urine running all down my pants and through my, my fingers. And, it's, and then a person next to me just looks over because it's, like, I'm only, like, a few feet away from each person on each side. And the person just looks over. It's like, bro, what are you doing? Just seeing me, like, splashing this urine <laughs> away from my body. And I was like, oh, I got a bug on my dick. And he goes, oh, bro, I hate that. And then somebody's <laughs> like, hey, what's going on over there? And he's like, oh, man, Rain's got a bug on his dick. And they're like, oh, bro, that's so, oh, man, can I see? Like, did he bite you? I'm like, don't look at it, faggot. Like, I like, you know, I just like, because I needed to like, sh and then, um, you know, I was like, my nickname was like Hobo for a couple of weeks because we only go into town like once a week to do our laundry. So I had this pair of pants that just smelled like urine the entire time. They were like, oh, Rain was so drunk. They just pissed all over themselves. They were literally <laughs> pissing drunk. And, um. Then at the end of my firefighting stint, a person informed the group, like, okay, uh, and they dropped the she pronoun. And basically, um, <laughs> uh, the group was like, she, Rain's a dude. And they're like, no, 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 it's she. Like, why would you think they're not a she? And they're like, 
because we saw his dick, he had to hold it with two hands. Turns out, because I had both hands here, people thought I had a really large penis. And this story was going around the camp for quite a while. The I myth is way more powerful than any <laughs> glimpse of anything anyone's seen. Yeah, exactly. I'm interested by the words that you use there, because the, using the word faggot is a really interesting way. It's a word that men would more often use between themselves. Yeah. Because it's a loaded word. It's going, not only do uh, am I a man talking to another man about a gay man, I'm telling you that you should not be looking at my genitals because in this situation for you, you're trying to protect them from looking at what the is genitals, basically someone. I weaponized the gayness. I, 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 wish I, hadn't, I wish I hadn't been that way, but it was the best way to protect myself in that moment. You were deep undercover. Sh- well, the, the further along we went, the bigger their damn muscles got. You know mm. what I mean? Like, you know, they, they just got like bigger and bigger and, and, and more. It was this weird call and response. Like, I am a heterosexual. I too am a heterosexual. I too am a heterosexual. I have a confident sex life. I too have a confident sex life. Because that's, it's call and response for security. Like when someone like walks by and you can't call. Oftentimes it happens in front of other men. So like uh, with these guys, they'll like comment on something sexual, right? But it's really call and response where they'll be like, I'm heterosexual. Look at me observing this person. And then other people are like, yeah, girl, get on back here. Oh, girl. Like, high five. And they're like, I validate your heterosexuality. I, too, am also heterosexual. Wow. Like, it's very, uh, it's, it's so funny. It's like, it's like birds chirping. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, it's, it's, it's like that with all things. Like, there's just, like, a, on, a lot of unnecessary over-sexualized banter, over-violent banter. Um, people just dropping the word like faggot, like they, they'll say that word and it's deeply offensive. But when they say it, they're saying it because they know that this word is a hate word. And there's all these little breadcrumbs just to be like, let people know, I am exactly what you are looking for. I am cool. Everything is cool. Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? What was their response when they found out, well, when the, when the she pronoun was dropped, as you say? They all used male pronouns. When I, I ended up being like, um, with a different group of people and I didn't really get to go back for very long to my crew but when I did talk with people afterwards they all used male pronouns except for one person when they said Rain this entire time you had those huge knockers and you never once showed them to us and I am deeply offended <laughs> <laughs> you Wait, know? when you were working with them did you bind yourself or? um yeah so that was my first experience with binding and um in fact my very first photo that was ever in a vogue publication is in vogue italia i was binding the way i used to bind and it's hard because that is one of the most famous photos um of my career like i mean i don't like the word famous but like i would say i would actually say it's because it's it's millions and millions and millions and millions of like shares and views and, and reusages. I mean, just it's, it's crazy. But it also is like a really toxic way to bind and it's really painful. And I feel bad because I can't ever take that image back and I can't find all the resources and be like, hey, can you just put a disclaimer on the bottom of this that other queer people shouldn't do that? Like, Why? It's really what's, bad. what's dangerous about it? When you bind with something that is not like a professional binder or not an elastic material, you can break your ribs. Um, you pass out. Um, I still have some scarring on the side of my breast from when things would rub um, and you also break down your your breast tissue you can create severe spinal issues and nerve damage even people lose the feelings in their hands um, because the material isn't expanding with your breath it's constantly compressing you all the time so when you're doing that every single day and I, I I learned how to layer a lot but I mean I have double D's you know and sometimes of the month they're a little bit bigger you know <laughs> so like it's hard to hide so I had to learn how to like it's about posture it's about layers 
Um, but, you know, sometimes we're working, like, in Grand Junction, Colorado, in the in the middle of the desert, and it's hot, and you're already hot because you're in the gear, but you're wearing extra stuff. So I would – sometimes I would have to bind. Um, and it was – like, it was so hard. Like, by the end of the day, you know, sometimes you get nosebleeds from it, which uh, was something that was really interesting um, just because you don't, you know, you're, there's, you're, everything is constricted so much. and um, So you, your blood flow can't drain into your chest properly, mm-hmm. I imagine. Yeah, I don't really know the science behind it, but I just remember getting uh, nosebleeds and getting, um, sometimes you get like a tinny taste in your mouth, which is really interesting. Um, and you get like, uh, it's just hard to breathe. And when you take that thing off at the end of the day, your lungs just explode. I mean, it's just, it was really, really intense. It's, so they it's weren't, hard. they weren't angry. There was no kind of sense of betrayal or anything that they'd let somebody into their midst. No, to... I think most people got a kick out of it, yeah. you know? And also we went through a really intense experience together. By that time period, we had already lost a few people and, and as well as like, and not just like that, but also like injury, like lost some crew members. And so we had a different uh, appreciation for each other by the end of my stint than from the beginning. Yeah. So there was just a little bit more respect and people were like, yo, range just rain, you know what I mean? But um, at the end of it, it was really difficult um, because when my career uh, ended up taking off and some of the stories of my experience went out into the world, that was the first time when people, so we didn't really stay in touch. We just, everybody just kind of went their own ways. But then like that TEDx talk came out and some other interviews just kind of talking a little bit about the experience. And a lot of the guys were really uh, embarrassed by the stories, which is why I try to keep everybody's names anonymous and things like that, because they know that I know the deep truth, which is that they did say a lot of really, really, really misogynistic, sexist, transphobic, homophobic, and racist things. And uh, shamefully, I didn't fight to correct them. You know, because in that point, I was like, I'm just going to keep myself safe because I don't have the money to go anywhere else. I don't know what else I can do. And I was trying to get my life together as a young homeless queer person. In today's society, now that we are really addressing sexual harassment and racism and and homophobia, transphobia on a global scale, the story is not cute anymore. And so a lot of them are very, like, uh, a lot of them feel frustrated. And it's been interesting. It's been hard to, like, juggle because it's a big part of my identity journey, and I want to share that with the world. But I also want to honor our code of conduct uh, for privacy and protection. But I think that that experience is such a valuable experience, and I think people need to know that you are a valid individual being. You are not a man. You are not a woman. You are just a thought and a flesh and a feeling and an emotion. You are this core thing and it's equal and it's beautiful and you're being brainwashed into having to live your life a particular way for fear of repercussions. And it's not fair to you. And I want people to know that they're valid to say this isn't fair. I should be able to wear what I want. I should be able to navigate language in a way that is my own way of navigating language. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You studied the common factors society affiliates with different genders and sexes and then harnessed them, as you say, like a superpower. For a while, I was what we call a gender capitalist, which is a person who understands that there are inherent benefits, not just detriments, but benefits to being perceived as male or female. Um, I do not do this anymore unless I'm flying and then it's very dangerous to be perceived as a woman, especially since a lot of people think I'm a trans woman because of my height and my aesthetic. So I usually present as male while I'm flying. But back in the day when I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to flex the superpower being able to be perceived as a male or a female. I found things like, for instance, if I wanted to go to a bar, a lot of places they let women in for free and men can't get in unless they bring a woman because they're trying to create an attraction, right? And when you see that it's free for women, it's not actually free. You're actually saying, I'm going to give up the need to pay in exchange for me being an attraction that you can profit off from, right? So we're actually paying a lot more than a lot of other people when you have an F on your ID. But if you wanted to, you present as like female, you you raise your voice a little bit, um, shoulders back. I don't think that breasts make a woman, but a a lot of society has been told that that's what makes a woman. So I show off those curves. Um, Your legs, when you're walking, they kind of cross over in front of each other just a little bit. And when you talk, you turn a lot of the things that you say more into questions than demands. (laughs) Even when you're saying a statement, because you're constantly asking permission for you to be there even if you're not saying it, you're asking permission to speak. You know what I'm saying? You know? So you go into that space where I I raise up my voice, I put back my shoulders, I show off those curves that society deems to be feminine, and then I get in for free. And on top of that, sometimes you even get free drink tickets. Mm. Now, at the end of the night, maybe you've had a couple too many free drinks and you've been able to save yourself maybe like $30, $40 because it's expensive to go out these days. Now you got to get home. But when you're getting home as somebody who is deemed to be feminine, especially if somebody thinks you're a trans woman or if they think that you are a vulnerable drunk woman, it could be very dangerous. You could be abducted, you could be targeted, or even just being touched sometimes. Just people come by and they just, they just touch you. It's the weirdest thing. Like, people are just like, I touch you now. <laughs> uh, and, and so in order to get home safely and to have a better guarantorship of going home safely, I will leave that bar and bring my shoulders forward. I'll put on my jacket. I furrow my brow. And when I'm walking, I make eye contact with people. That's interesting. Um, But I have the privilege of being perceived as a cis white man. So my experience is very specific um, to that race, because if you were to be doing it, like a friend of mine uh, did the social experiment with me recently as well. And when they walk, they keep their eyes down. Because if you keep your eyes up, an officer may actually stop you and say, are you on drugs? Are you threatening? What are you looking at this person for? If you're, so was um, your friend black? Or my friend was black. Okay. Um, and they also are, um, by societal standards, somebody who's able to present as both. We had a conversation. They're like, you know, we have the same experience. as a bla- When people think I'm a black man, they harass me less than when they think I'm a black woman. However, when I leave, I don't look at people because I'm perceived as a threat. 
And I'm like, I look at people in order to ensure people know I am a white man taking up space on this sidewalk and people don't mess with you. Um, I also did, uh, I just really recently did a social experiment with dating, which I thought turned out quite well, um, where I put up a profile for dating and uh, profiles were identical. The likes, the interest, even the photos. But the only thing that was different was that one profile identified as male and one profile identified as female. And the sexuality for both profiles was bisexual or open sexuality, depending on what the app said. And it was really, really interesting. It's like if I actually want to be able to meet someone in person, it's better to be perceived as a female because more people are willing to meet someone who identifies as female. So if you actually want to have a physical connection. Um, as a male, my conversations were a lot shorter with women. So like... Um, I had to do a lot of that initiation, asking the questions, and typically conversations would be like between five and ten exchanges, whereas as a female, perceived as female, I was like having longer conversations with people. And I found as a woman, I actually had to do less work. <laughs> but then you have to do more investigative work, right? <laughs> like, because um, the male profile felt like I had to fish a lot in order to actually catch something on my line, whereas like the female profile, it's like, okay, I'm catching every fucking thing on this line. <laughs> I need to like learn how to have more selective bait, like, whereas like the male profile, I'm like, you're constantly throwing your line into the water. Yeah. And I can, I, I, and even though I, was, I didn't date any of the people, I was just interested in seeing how this experiment, um, what, what, is it better for me to be perceived as male or female huh. in the dating world? And I determined that it's equal in different ways. It's really complicated to date anyway. Being perceived as a woman, in a weird way, you have a sense of control, right? Because we're in a space where we are recognizing that women can be the ones who can be harassed. On the male side, you're like, fucking hell, I have to fight very hard to get this person to even like me um, because they see me as a threat right out the gate. Right, yes. Um, And the women are like, well, yeah, because you see us as a fucking commodity, you know? So it's like, it's it's confusing, it's weird, and both sides, all sides, are being disenfranchised Mm. by each other. Do you find that when you're presenting more male or more female... Not only are different people attracted to you, but your own sexual attraction changes. For me, every um, sexual connection I have with people is very, very individualistic and personal. But I think people bring different things out of me. Sometimes things I didn't even know I had. And you have different energies that complement each other. And sometimes I have to sit down and say, am I this way because I am this way? Or am I this way because I'm performing something in order to guarantee their affections? Sometimes I'm like, I don't really like the thing that I'm doing. <laughs> like, why am I doing that? Um, am I self-sabotaging because uh, of what I perceive that this person will be in my life based on the fact that they are this identity? And I know traditionally that this identity is, um, you know, a negative in your life. I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. it's weird. Like every single experience is very, very individual. And I've, I've dated some amazing, amazing humans, like just like absolutely phenomenal. And, and a lot of them are very strong hearted and strong minded individuals. They're very direct in the way that they speak and they're very powerful forces. And so sometimes I, I go back and I look at those relationships and I'm like, how did I uh, get overpowered in that situation? Uh, how much of losing that power was me giving it up mm. as a performative thing? And how much of it was like, me um, losing that power, uh, how much of it is like con- social conditioning. It's very, it's very hard because we have to come to terms with the person that we've been in order to be able to cope with the person that we are. Um, but when you don't know how much of it is really you and how much of it is the you that you were told you were supposed to be, hmm. 
it gets weird. And all this reflection can be also quite sort of exhausting. You know, yes. You're being so thoughtful and trying to work at the permutations of who's in charge here and do I mind them being in charge? It sounds like important work to do, but also I can find people sometimes deciding I'm not going to do this work because it's just too tiring. You have to know when you are wondering and when you are wallowing. When am I going in and doing this introspective work? And when am I actually just like flogging myself to death emotionally? Sometimes you have to step away from it too. You just got to let go and forgive yourself because the fact that you've even wondered how you can be better, that's like, that's the work itself. There's a lot of controversy at the moment in London about the amount of unisex toilets or not that are provided in these very old traditional theatres. The particularly, there's, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's been a lot of chat about the old Vic Theatre recently, right. where the audiences are predominantly upper middle class white people in their mm. 60s, for example. Mm. And um, they're very cross at the idea of a unisex toilet being right. put in, or at least there's been a lot of chat about it. Um, and I wondered what your experience of, of loos are, actually. <laughs> I mean, um, I do have a lot of bathroom anxiety, and it, it, part of it comes from your guilt of not wanting to be inconvenient to other people. Mm. You have to stop apologizing for it, but you also know that people are products of trauma sometimes, especially people who identify as female. Um, and so when you walk into a restroom and you look like what they've been brainwashed to believe is a man, it can be really scary for them. Why is this man in this restroom? A vulnerable space where we have our pants down. And so people have literally fought for their lives with me. I go in and I've been pepper sprayed. I've been hit with purses, people yelling. People like um, sometimes they'll, I'll go in and they, they get that look and then they'll go out. And then um, one time I was in Camden. This is, a, I have never talked about the story um, on here, but I have a really good friend um, who is like, you should talk about this. And I, I didn't make a big deal because I didn't want to be inconvenient. But um, so I was at this bar in Camden, which actually Camden seems like it's a really progressive, oh, progressive space, yeah. right? So I'm at this bar in Camden and I went to use the restroom and um, I was pulled out of the restroom from underneath the bathroom door because I refused to open it because I was going number two. And, um, and the security guard came in and I was like, I'll give you my ID. Like I was like, I can put it underneath the door. And they were just like, I think they thought, you know, I need to like save these poor innocent women from this person who's locked in the stall. And maybe this person's doing drugs or maybe they're hiding. So they reached out underneath the stall, like some horror movie and tried to unlock it, but they couldn't do it because their arm wasn't long enough. So they just grabbed my leg and I'm, I'm like, yo, like I'm trying to like push and kick. And they pulled me out in, of this bathroom, like to the front, of it, not all the way out into the bar, but like to the, to the outside of the bathroom, just a step with my whole pants down. My nibbles just flying through the air. And I was like, I was like, okay, first of all, I shouldn't have to have this genitalia for us to like, to, val to validate me being in there. But I was like, I was like, look at them, look at them, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I, you know, sometimes you don't say things that are super PC, but in the moment I was like, world's smallest dick, world's smallest dick. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but that was what came out of my mouth. I mean, it's, it, I, I wish I could have said something cooler and like more like PC and like on brand, but I was like in trauma and I was like, bah. And um, the bar uh, gave me a free drink. <laughs> then that was it. And I wrote to the manager. They were like, well, what do you want to do about it? And I was just like, 
I would really like for your staff to be educated about um, people. Because first of all, we've been using the words male and female. And I'm doing that because it's the easy way for people to understand what I'm talking about. Because we have been so brainwashed and we really, really like lean on this language. But for me, there's no way to be a man or a woman. And there's no, like, I mean, there is, but it's it's really just your opinion, honestly. Um, and I also think that like, there's no way to look like a man or woman. There's no real way. I mean, there's a way in which like people have kind of like brainwashing you into thinking but I have like this short hair I'm tall I got a chiseled jawline I got muscles for days like and you know I technically uh, am what some people might think is male presenting but if you're gonna ignore my identity for all intents and purposes and be like you're a woman you were born a female then this is what a fucking female looks like like this is what it looks like yeah so if someone who walks into that bar walks into that restroom i shouldn't have to do some weird performative song and dance and like wear a dress just to be able to go to the bathroom like we're in a we're in a society where people are wearing like pants now and and shirts i should be able to do that without getting pulled out from underneath a stall i'm but so sorry that happened to you it's it's hard it's okay it's just like it's just like it's not it's i mean it's well i mean i'm okay but i mean the situation it wasn't okay but That's i mean shocking. i'm I want people to not be so scared, but the, the problem is, is that there has been a lot of violence that has occurred to vulnerable people all around the world that has been perpetrated by people that look like me. Mm. And I have to understand as much as I'm angry and I'm like, fuck you, you should accept me in your space. I also have to understand that they're reacting because they're afraid. And when you have to shake it up and you have to say, okay, like we're going to have unisex toilets in every single place. People are like, I'm going to have to risk engaging with people who look like people who have perpetrated traumas on myself or my friends. And I am going to have to do a lot more emotional and energetic work every day. We are doing ourselves a great disservice by homogenizing our oppressors and homogenizing our enemy. But there are a lot of nations that have unisex toilets and they actually have a very low crime rate. <laughs> and in fact, a lot of the toilets that are divided by male and female because um, if a perpetrator goes in, whether that perpetrator is male or female, then they go into the women's toilet to attack a woman. They oftentimes do so because they know that the only other people they're gonna have to fight off if things go down is other women. And for them, they've been brainwashed to believe that women are weak and they're easy to overpower. But if you have a unisex toilet and you have all people going in, suddenly that whole entire thing is smashed because if you want to go in there and perpetrate a crime, you have to understand that anyone could walk through that door at any time. And actually, crimes go down yeah. in unisex toilets. But it's the fear that we're going to have to do the work. It's the fear <laughs> that we're going to have to take a risk, any risk at all, that keeps people from making changes. And yet it's the trans people or the people who are non-binary who are actually so often most vulnerable, I think, in the current situation. Mm. Yeah, we're definitely in like purgatory yeah. or purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal. You know, you are in limbo all the time. And yeah. it's hard. It's hard because you don't want to be an enemy. You just want to go to the restroom and you want to hold compassion. But you also just don't want to be dragged screaming yeah. out of the toilet trying to have poo. Like I said, when I travel... I do this performative gender capitalism thing. I travel as a man, but when I'm on the flight, I present as feminine or female or just myself because it's easier to get along with the stewardess that way or the steward or the 
person that's on there. Oh my gosh, I just used a gender term. For all this. My brainwashing. <laughs> Quickly corrected. Quickly. No, no, no. This, that's my brainwashing, and I own it. I'm still growing. So anyone who's listening to this, just know that I am also a work in progress. I'm not some like virtue signaling. I'm better than you person. I'm. I see something, and I'm trying to fix it. But I also just like you have decades of brainwashing under my belt and I'm constantly making mistakes by saying things like stewardess on a plane. I mean, there's all kinds of people that work on a plane, but that's the first thought that came to my mind and I acted on it. I should own that. It's good. Um, but I mean, you know, I'll be on a plane and then once I get off the plane, um, uh, then I go back to being what society would deem to be mask presenting. Um, and then when I go into the toilets, I go into the men's toilet because I just don't want to take a risk. I don't want to, it's just no one questions me ever, ever, ever. I did a, another experiment where I walked into men's toilets wearing a dress and I walked into women's toilets wearing a suit. And I got sexually harassed a couple of times and then I had another person like knock on my door. But that was just for the men's. And then with the women's toilet, walking with a suit, I mean, it was so crazy. Like it was just so much violence and, and anger and fear. But then again, I mean, because of the high rates of rape and sexual harassment and violence towards female identifying individuals it's completely understandable but it's just like fucking hell and then uh then i go to like hail a cab and if i go to hail a cab um i tend to do it um as myself or just like very femme presenting because once again it, it's just easier to get someone's attention because i i stick out a lot more when people see me as femme presenting because they they're like you don't look normal so i'm mm. i my eyes go to you and then uh once i get to my you know once i get to my place um especially if i'm doing like an airbnb I present as male. Um, I tend to be left alone by my host more often. They don't really want to engage in conversation as much. And I like to kind of like have my space. So it feels like masculine presenting is a really good safety option, has safety um, connotations. And female presenting has... More care uh, options. Like care and jumping in front protection. of the queue kind of... Social advantage. So there's, a, there's definitely a social advantage. Like for instance, um, if I wanted to like, if my flight was delayed... And I like airlines are required to give you like food vouchers and things like that if you're waiting. And I find that actually I can actually get more if I'm femme presenting. It's a weird world. And I think a lot of women, especially today, are so just fed up with the way that uh, people who have identified as women have been abused in the past, that they're done with it and they're angry. And we have to take a moment sometimes to acknowledge the progress that has been made for um, making the human experience more equal. Mm -hmm. And we also have to take a moment to acknowledge our own privilege, because what we're asking for is for our oppressors, whether um, you see oppression as male or white or a certain age or a certain size, whatever it is, you're asking basically for people to step down from places of power, not just step. You want them to like come down right now. You're asking them to take a trust fall and you have to ask yourself, am I trying to empower or am I trying to be in power? You need to let them know that it's safe, that if they fall, that you've caught them, that whatever you eat, they have access to eat that too. The the table that you're at, they have access to that table too, unless it's like a safe space where people are going over there, you know, ex- exchanging about traumas and things like that, like healing spaces. You need to let them know that they have access to the same uh, amount of time on that microphone, that they have access to the same amount of um, resources. And a lot of people, they don't want to come off from those places of power because they know that if they fall, like, or they jump, we're just going to let them fall right through us and down and we're going to take... Um, revenge for, they they feel like we're going to take revenge for decades or centuries or thousands of years of 
actions done by people who look like them. That's why I feel very much feel of sort of the Republican Party's view of Latinos and black people, that yeah. actually you can't let um, blacks and Latinos rise up in America because actually they will trample you down if you are the original white oppressor. And um, to be honest, they might. They might. The people are very angry. Systemic oppression. I mean, it really is something that it just robs people. It's that hate that you're born into. And people are like, I'm mad at someone and that someone isn't fucking alive, but you are a fucking product of that thing that I'm mad at. And someone has to pay somewhere because it's not fair. Um, What needs to happen is like, I think people need to have comprehensive strategies and say, hey, we need the microphone right now because you guys have had it like for a while, okay? Um, But once resources have been redistributed, we have to be able to live in a space where you do have access to that microphone again. You do have the same amount of access to food and shelter and water. Opioid addictions are hitting your community and we need to be stepping up for you too. We, your struggles are valid, even if they are different. Like your struggles are valid. Your pain is valid. You're allowed to say my life sucks. And you know what? I need to show up and volunteer in your life just like you need to volunteer in mine. And we need to, to let them know, we need to let people know that have been, especially people who are adamant and like withholding resources or being oppressive. We need to let them know like, it's a safe space to step down. We may not like you and we might be frustrated and um, we may put you in time out for a minute, but we promise you that we are going to treat you with the same amount of love and respect and fairness that our community has, even if we don't agree with you. It's so difficult when equality feels like a loss of privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like you've, you've, you've actually taken something away from me because now I'm the same as you. Yeah, and, that, and those people are like, it's not my fault I was born into a cis white hetero male body. And you have to be like, you're right. It's not. And we're sorry that we're asking you to make up for a lot of other people. They're they're not the ones who created slavery on that level, right? But they are people who are benefiting from those systems. And at the same time, maybe uh, like my father is a Trump supporter, right? So one of my parents is a Trump supporter. They love Donald Trump. And it's really difficult sometimes to have this conversation because they do believe in the wall. They do believe in like taking away resources and not paying back to people. And it's that's a really hard relationship to have. But the reason why my parent has that is because they, you know, they live in a very poor community. They basically live in a food desert where like a head of lettuce is $5, but the average wage for a teacher is like $10 an hour. And they're teaching kids. They're getting paid a very, very little wage. It's hard to be fed. Um, They're getting shat on by like uh, vegan individuals who are like, you are uh, meat-eating redneck, but they're hunting because literally that hunting license is a food stamp for them. And because they feel like no one's coming to take care of them, because people are angry at them for being a cis, white, hetero man, they're like, then I'm going to take care of my own. And I'm going to preserve my own because none of my tax dollars are going into special programs to help raise my kids and put them in, like, colleges. I don't see any special provisions for me. I'm not a a wealthy, white, cis male. I don't have that executive privilege. And, yeah, I might not be likely to be shot by a police officer getting pulled over. But for me, that's really the least of my problems. My problems are opioid addictions in my community, the fact that there is extreme poverty, the fact that I feel abandoned. And what we need to do as a community is say, fucking hell, that's a very valid problem and that needs to be solved. And even though we're angry and we're like, shut up, just let us have the microphone because we just, you know, we need to like let people know that like we care. 
Mm. Even if we're angry, we fucking care. And part of this taking the microphone, this this film that you're working on, Queers Without Fears. Oh, uh, yeah, Queers Without Fears. <laughs> what is that platform doing? What, what is that mm. about? Okay, so I have this show called Queers Without Fears. Uh, it's coming out in December, at the end of December. Queers Without Fears was made because I have been getting a lot of auditions, which is wonderful for uh, roles uh, in films, but they're usually queer roles. Um, and every single one of those roles has a lot of sex in it. And I look on television, I'm so happy to see that different sexualities and identities are thriving. And in fact, we're actually demanding and craving them. But it's like in order to prove your sexuality, you have to have sex on camera. And I'm looking around and I'm like, every single storyline is around the violence that's being, not every, but a lot of them are around violence being perpetrated on our communities, us suffering from trauma, us trying to overcome trauma. Or as queer people, we're always getting in the way of like someone's very set relationship. And we are sign of infidelity. Mm. Of course parents don't want their kids to be queer when they look on TV and all they see is that we're getting raped, murdered, we're breaking up loving heterosexual couples and we're just having a lot of crazy sex and we're never happy in our relationships. We're just like not in a loving relationship. I mean Modern Family did a great thing. That was an amazing relationship but those are so rare because people also in order for us to be marketable because we are a niche identity then we need to have something that is mass relatable. So violent sex, things like that that people mm. will watch even even if it's queer, right? But I look around and I'm like, look at all these people who are young and growing up and what do they have to look up to? What do they have to watch and consume? And what are they told about the destiny of their future? That they are going to have to have a lot of sex in the future, that sex can be a big part of their life, violence is, drugs are, that they should wallow in their problems. And so Queers Without Fears, it's a sci-fi series. And it's literally the dream. <laughs> it's a mockumentary sci-fi series that's set kind of like if Xena Warrior Princess had a baby with the office and then they had like an uncle with the mighty boosh. That <laughs> oh, is like this sounds very <laughs> up my street. <laughs> yes. this, that's what the series is. It's very quirky. Every single element of the show is made by queer community completely every single thing. Um, I shot it, I wrote it, I edited it, I did all the lighting and the sound. And only five people in the series are actually actors. The other people, these other hundreds of people, they're all just people who showed up. We just post on Instagram, they show up. And the idea is to have a queer show that's fun and weird and, and just, just a way to just kind of turn off your brain for a second. And it doesn't have sex in it. It doesn't have drugs in it. Our struggle is not that we got raped. Our struggle is that we're trying to survive an authoritarian government in 2038 and we're living in these bunkers and we have nowhere to go. We're singing and we're dancing and we're doing something that we aren't doing in the queer community, which is like we're having conversations like we make it so if there's a storyline that's just bullet points, but it's not scripted. So when you show up, I say things are going to happen here. Say what you want to say. Mm-hmm. So we did things like... um We did social experiments, like we made it so there was a plot line where a bunker that only has trans people and a bunker that only has cis women and everyone's forced into one bunker together. And the problem comes at nighttime when people have to go to bed. And it's like women over here, men over here. Mm -hmm. And the trans women go over with the cis women and the cis women are like, hell hell no. And they have a big fight erupts, right? And now keep in mind, most of these people are not actors. They, I mean, only five of them are actors. So we have the actors kind of like giving some key lines, but anyone can talk at any point. And we get all these people to sit down and have a conversation that the queer community doesn't want to have because we're already told that like our identity is messed up and we don't want to talk about the fact that we are actually eating each other alive. Like the letters are so separate and we're, we're actually hurting our community. by We're very much against each other. And so we have this conversation between trans women and uh, these people that were labeled as TERFs and uh, trans men. 
who ended up being bridging the gap between the two parties and huh. saying, let's talk about these experiences. Oh, wow. Now, it's messy because that's real life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This series is messy. Like, we have action scenes where we're driving by Buckingham Palace and we're on top of a car shooting a crossbow. I don't know how we didn't get arrested, <laughs> but it's messy. Is it shot in London? It's weird. It's shot in London. It's messy. It's weird because real life is messy. Real life is like what I'm doing right now, which is tangenting. People don't talk <laughs> and always have clever lines to say. And I, I'm tired of, like, seeing so many polished queer characters and polished marginalized characters who come out of oppression with the perfect thing to say in that mm. perfect moment. Mm. And guess what? We don't have that. So I, it's just every episode's around a conversation. It's lots of glow sticks and laser lights and car chases. And it's just a lot of fun. And it's also a lot of, like, really important information that um, is just put in a way that's just not preachy. We can't wait to see it. Can't wait to show you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. We hope you enjoyed Season 2. And we'll be back next year with a brand spanking new Season 3. See you then. If you enjoyed this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and gives the series a boost. Give us five stars, you lovely lad. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course... Pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.